I'm Sonia Morton Firth and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today my guest is Jackie Marson, psychologist, author and award-winning TV reporter. One of the first female reporters, Jackie won numerous awards for exclusive reports on war-torn locations. Following her book, The Curse of Lovely, she now helps women on relationships, empowerment and communication skills. True courage is not being an adrenaline junkie, go to the same. It is daring to be who you really are, speaking your truth. Jackie, I am so excited and first thing I've got to say is thank you. Welcome to my home. And we've got something in common that I want to just touch on first of all. Because you've lived most of your life, in, or a lot of your life, in Newcastle, yeah, my yeah, hometown. Yeah. Best city in the country, I think. Fantastic city. I lived there for 10 years. Absolutely go back often. Got a lot of friends there. Love it. Best people on earth. Oh, I love it. So, so you warm, see... so friendly, so funny. Aren't they? They, really, they are, and they're funny. warm, and they're friendly. So anyone out there that's watching from Geordie yeah, Land, yes. give us a like or whatever. <laughs> we're uh, the lads. We're the lads, <laughs> absolutely. Jackie, look, I've got, we've got so much to talk about and get through today, and I know this is going to be an exciting episode. But before we start, can I ask you to tell my audience who you are and a little bit more about your journey into being a war reporter? Okay. So my journeys are so long, I have to kind of, you know, edit them down. But so I'm Jackie Marson. I'm now a chartered counselling psychologist. But uh, my first career was journalism. I trained on the Newcastle Evening Chronicle. That's why I say Newcastle, say it properly. Uh, and then I worked at Border Television in Carlisle. That's why I love the North East, lived there for a decade. And it was while I was at Border Television where I was given the job of news editor, which was I, was really, I wasn't brilliant at because I'm not. I'm not that interested in news and I couldn't make decisions fast enough. But I met this really interesting guy called David Bailey, not the famous one, though he you know, would think he was, is his name. And he was trying to become a, a, war, a war filmmaker. I mean, he's extraordinary. Talk about gutsy. He would have these ideas that he would just go for them. And I met him and he said, I'm looking for a, basically he wanted a young woman journalist little bit sexist because he knew really he didn't he was quite shy he needs someone he knew about journalism that had the social skills he was very much about persuading people to do things so we did a very took a massive risk we i left border television we set up this company an independent production company called wildcat films so this is in the late 80s um which a good time for indies because channel four had just started and they had to have everything made by independent production companies. So it, it was much easier than it would be today because I make it sound maybe quite easy. And then we started kind of, to be honest, blagging our way into commissions. So like the first thing we did was, the first thing that was on the Channel 4, we made a film about the war between India and Pakistan on the Siachen Glacier, which is the highest war in the world. It's still going on. But it's like a hidden war that no one knows about. David was a bit of a, cl a climber, like a mountaineer and adventurer. So he had been there on a trek with some people. So he knew about it, but it was kind of hidden from the world. And a lot of other things had happened. We had sort of befriended Benazir Bhutto, now assassinated, who at the time was in opposition in Pakistan. General Zia al-Haq was killed in a plane crash. Benazir Bhutto became the first woman president of an Islamic nation back in the 80s. And she said to us, 
what do you want to film? And David said, I want to film the war on the Siachen Glacier. And she said, no way, no one's ever filmed that. It's kind of, no one's ever even photographed it. We can't take journalists up there. And so this is, this is where one of my sort of skills really is perseverance, determination. I know you have this as well. <laughs> I, 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 and I can feel it in you. I'm dying to ask because, you know, you, 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 you've already told me that, you know, you, you, you've just put yourself forward for this incredible <laughs> position. And, you know, I'm guessing at the time, and I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, there weren't a lot of women doing this anyway. No, hardly at all. I mean, there's famous ones like Katie Ady. Yes. Which yes. is embedded Again, in the BBC. From Sunderland. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. And there is another woman, no longer, she's no longer with us, called Sue Lloyd Roberts. Someone mentioned her the other day. She was a woman who did independent production and went to, if not war zones, quite dangerous places. But I still think I can probably say I was the first woman independent war correspondent really so what was it that you think that really gave you that drive and determination to do that were you frightened no i was rarely frightened i think i was always a bit of adrenaline junkie from the age of six i had been very into horse riding and it's interesting women i meet in later life i kind of recognize after about half an hour's chat i say to them were you a horse kid and they go yeah how do you know and i go there's just an air, air around women who, who rode, who it makes you very tough. Because when you're a little kid, like one of my first memories, I was learning to ride when I was six, maybe six months into learning to ride, I was on this little pony in the winter, it, it bucked or reared, it threw me off, but my foot got caught in the stirrup and I got dragged up a cut stubble field on my back, one foot in the stirrup for about, I don't know how long, five minutes, 10 minutes, my back, had lines of blood on it. I was cut to ribbons by this stubble of the cornfield. And finally, the pony comes to a halt, and the woman goes, get back on the horse. Oh, well, it's, it's that expression, is it? You know, get back on the horse. I literally got back on the horse. And there's something in my family. My mum is very stoic and tough. So there was a real thing in my family about a sort of, what I would call like a hero narrative about being tough. You know, if, so that, that story of me getting back, oh, Jackie got back on the pony at six with her back cut to ribbons. So I always like, you know, took that in my stride and I was sporty and loved the horses. So when David said, I want to go to war zones, I'm like, yes, I'll go to war zones with you. And the great thing about it was, though, you were always sort of with one side, even if they're the rebel army and they are kind of sneaking around against the government, they will look after you. Your life isn't in that much moment-by-moment moment danger, in a way. There have been moments when, I, the worst thing that happened to us, we were in Pakistan before we went to cover that Siachen Glacier mm. War, but there was just street fighting going on, and the police were firing shots and tear gassing. I've been tear gassed quite a few times. Um, <laughs> but you took it in your stride, you quite easy. Easy. You've got a wet flannel over your face and you get out of it. But, um, we were hiding or we were sort of sheltering under a corrugated iron roof and there were shots were bouncing off that roof and we had to get out of there. And at that point I said to David, oh, you know, we could get, we could get hit here by a gun. He goes, no, we just wait for a lull in the firing and then we run. And so that's probably the nearest I came to. Would you say to. that was your hairiest moment? Yes, probably, probably. And then the photograph that hopefully we will show in, in, in this programme, one of my finest moments for me on this horse in Nicaragua in the Sandinista War against the Contra, again in the 80s. Um, I couldn't keep up with the soldiers because they were very fit and we were carrying all the camera gear. 
So I, they got borrowed me a horse from a farm. So there's this picture of me. I love so I'm sitting with my great horse picture. I've got the camera wrapped in bin liners in front of me, the video camera. And they all teased me and said, if we get bombed, because there was bombing was going on by the Contra, uh, they said, you'll be hit first because you're the highest. But I just went, ah, <laughs> But also, see, Sonia, there was an element of it. I was always out with mostly guys. And it was like, you know, some of the time, this sounds awful because I was in war zones, but it's like I got on well with, with soldiers, with army captains. I've got, you know, great social skills and it was quite fun. They hadn't seen a woman for months, so they liked, but I was safe because I was with my partner. So you were tear gassed, nearly bombed, <laughs> gunshots. I mean, how did all this make you feel as a woman? In, I mean, I don't know if you can remember back. How were you feeling at the time? I, I wasn't, I can't really remember being scared. Honestly, Sonia, this is awful. Like, my main feeling looking back is I was having a great time. I mean, a friend of mine who's from Venezuela, and she was looking at my photos of the Nicaraguan war that we went to, to twice, and she said, Jackie, you look like you're at a party. Because <laughs> I'm grinning, I look really happy. Because, you know, it was exhilarating, and we were doing something really worthwhile, and, you know, I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie. I used to get very bored when I got home. And I don't think any of this is psychologically healthy. You ask any of those war correspondents, they hate being at home. That's when they start going a bit mad. My next question would be, what have you taken from that life to where you are today? Mm. So that was, that's a good question. I think I'm always really good in a crisis. I'm, I'm sort of happiest in a crisis. Like, not that lockdown was particularly a crisis, but, the, you know, it was quite short notice when we were first locked down, wasn't oh, yes, it? Yes, yes. I went into crisis management mode. I was like, right. You know, we've got these two. My son, who's a student, came back from uni suddenly, his girlfriend. The mum of the girlfriend said, we can't have her back in the house because she's been in your house. I'm like, right, four of us, we're here for lockdown. Right, let's write schedules. What are we going to do for fun? And we're going to have a Cobra meeting once a week, all this. And I was sort of in my element to start with. My gosh, you sound like it's someone that should actually be. And <laughs> in I, charge I, of the government. Well, I, I interview a lot of veterans, but it almost say it sounds military yes. and very organised the way you're That's doing interesting. things as well. Because the other day, I no, not the other day, back in March, when we were going to come out of this third lockdown, I suddenly was desperate to go traveling. You see, I've still got the travel bug, mm -hmm. travel adventure. But um, so I planned this big trip to Scotland, to the Inner and Outer Hebrides, which is pretty damned adventurous. And I wrote this sort of four page schedule with all the ferries, all the buses, the trains were going to go. And my husband was like, wow, you know, thank you for doing that. And I went, I love writing a schedule. <laughs> but, but at the same time, not very organized because I'm a woman you will have noticed that doesn't really reply to her emails very quickly. So it's not that I'm super efficient. I just, I'm just good in a crisis. So if you're looking at your life, I guess, back then, you know, shot out, we talked about tear gas, doing all these adrenaline things, what most women wouldn't do. What was your biggest challenge or what have you found your biggest challenges in life? Well, this is so interesting. And this is the, the second book I'm working on now. It, it's really the juxtaposition between, I want to call it fear hyphen less, fearless, because and have this picture of me on the horse in the Sandinista mm -hmm. army, because I look the ultimate courage going in a war zone, surrounded by soldiers. And yet, at the same time, I was... I didn't have that personal bravery that allowed me to stand up to the difficult people in my life. 
Um, she probably won't listen to this. I can say I have a very, very difficult mother. Um, and I, I, I was scared of her. And I, I became scared. I was quite scared of difficult people. Up to the extent... And, and my first book was called the, the Curse of Lovely. And what is The Curse of Lovely? So I invented that title because it seemed to me the perfect paradox that so many people would like to be called lovely. Like, oh, that lovely man, that lovely woman. It seems like, in a way, a great compliment. Well, we call each other lovelies, we do. No, you know, I call we my do. girlfriends, hey, lovely, how are you doing? So it's a word that we sort of all would maybe aspire to. And yet, if you really have a lot of that set of lovely behaviours, i.e. you're sort of a people pleaser, really, and you can't say no, it feels like a trap, a curse. Because you get trapped in it because other behaviours become unavailable to you. You can't say no when people pile demands on you. You can't ask for what you want. You, you can't be assertive. And you um, end up doing being quite passive-aggressive. And, and what areas of your life were you doing this? So I would say primarily the difficult people in my life. So that would have been this David Bailey that I owned the company with mm. Wildcat with. He was a very strong character. And we're just starting, because I'm, I'm asking him, are my memories correct? for this memoir I want to write, so I'm checking them with him. Um, and he has reframed my narrative a bit. I kind of felt like he was very dominant and I was a bit, I had a bit of a victim narrative around him that, you know, I couldn't, uh, anyway, but he, he told me the story about how I, we had an argument in front of those Sandinista soldiers in an aircraft carrier and I slapped him around the face. And the soldiers were all like, opened their mouths and stared at him because it's such a machismo society yes, in Latin America. They were all thinking, oh my God, is he going to batter her now because she slapped him? He just laughed because, you know, that would be him. But he said, and I suddenly thought, actually, I did, I did sort of battle from my point of view because we used to argue over how to cover stories. We used to argue about everything. But I still look back and think I found it hard to be clear, calm, assertive. Say no to things. You know, I don't want to go to your birthday party, your drinks, or I can't help you. It's got a lot worse since I became a mother because then how do you, do you how, where do you set boundaries with your kids? Because you want them to love you. How do you then, when other mums say, will you have my kid tonight after school? Oh, yes. You know, it's like, no, no, sorry, I can't do that. Why not? Because you're picking your own up. It becomes sort of harder. Why do you think people do this? And I'm, and I'm going to probably say women. Is it majority women? So I say in the book, I think of my client base, it was like one in ten were men. And I think if you're a lovely man, because we all know men, we call lovely, don't we? Oh, do yes, you? yes, absolutely. It's harder to be a lovely man because it's more shaming. Because men are supposed to be kind of, you know, assertive, if not domineering, a bit alpha. And to be a sort of maybe, I mean, we all hate that expression. You know, when someone talks about someone's partner or husband, they say he's under the thumb or he's henpecked. I mean, that's a massive insult, isn't it, really? For the man. For the man. Absolutely, completely. So these lovely men, I think it's even harder for them to, to break out of that prison, that curse of those behaviours. But those behaviours are mostly fueled by fear. It's fear that what will happen if people don't like us. You know, well, we well, need that's it. Because when I first read this, I thought, "Well, I'm not. A pe you know, I don't see myself as a people pleaser." Yet, when you start thinking about your behaviours and what you do, I was like, "Wow, that's interesting." Mm. I didn't want to say no in a particular situation, ah. and it wasn't until I was sort of doing the research um, on your book, and I was like, 
wow, I was actually doing what I thought I never do, which was I was people pleasing. Right. And you actually don't realize you do do it on an off on a quite often basis. Yeah. Uh, and for me, it came down to I don't want to be judged. Yeah. And that's my fear ah. is more of how people will judge me. Yeah. What is the what do you think is the limiting self belief behind it? Well, just to go back one step to what you said, what mm. I have found fascinating in my own research is that so many people, especially men, go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's not me. I'm, I, I'm not a people pleaser. And I will say to them, I have yet to meet a person who does not struggle with one of the sets of relationships in their life. So that might be with your, your own mother or father, your in-laws, your grandmother, your boss, your children, your wife, your friends. So I had clients over the years who would be like managing a 500 people, so assertive at work. I imagine maybe you were mm -hmm. in your powerful position. And yet they come home, they're a doormat to their kids. Oh, of course you're gonna have another ice cream. Oh, don't you know, don't, you can't put them to bed, can't say no because they fear the kids don't love them. Or to maybe their wife, because she's, you're never here. So they're a bit like, so it's, it, that to me, the people pleasing is fueled by where our fear is that we're, that we're not good enough or that people won't like That's us and love us. So for me, my weak spot would have been, still is really, would be in a corporate situation yes. that I don't think I'm quite good enough because I had this kind of weird disruptive career because of motherhood, also because I've been self-employed for so long. I think like if I go into a corporation, I can't handle the hierarchy. Mm, well, <laughs> you know, well, I, I went, don't like the hierarchy. No, but I can't even handle them, you know. I, so, so it's like I've been to war zones, I've done all these brave things, but, and the other thing with me, I can't, I couldn't, I'm better now, I couldn't go back to a posh, boutique and return a dress because the shop assistants would disapprove me like oh madam you know I'm surprised this dress is it because you're too fat or just be sniffy and disapproving that frightened me because I kind of needed everyone to like me wow that's really interesting. of course you don't need to do that now just send it back in the post then yes you exactly, need to see. exactly <laughs> right. so what yeah. tips would you give anybody that's watching this and thinking gosh I'm a people pleaser but how do I say no what I wrote in the book was I designed this thing called the gracious no, because I think when you don't like saying no, it's because you think it's a negative thing, it has negative energy. So I have designed this way that it has positive energy around it. Because if you're lovely, you want to stay in the positive energy, but you know, we all should really. So the first step one is you thank them for asking you, whether that's face to face, on email, over the telephone, you say, thank you so much for asking me to clean out your dog kennel yes. and you know <laughs> you know I'm I'm really flattered that's a bit sarcastic I'm really flattered that you thought of me but say I'm very you invited me to your 30th birthday 50th birthday party you know thank you so much for thinking of me it sounds amazing however and then I say make a gap make a pause especially if they've caught you face to face like your boss has caught you in the corridor a mum's caught you on the school run they go oh would you just do this the lovely, in fact, many people just at that point, your default is to say yes. So you have to say, thank you so much for thinking of me. I've got to check with my diary, my partner, my kids, myself. Just make a space. But tell them when you're going to get back to them. So if it's the mum at the school run, you say like, um, oh, I've got to check with my diary. I will let you know first thing tomorrow morning. On the email from the client, uh, I've got a lot going on at the moment. Uh, thank you for thinking of me. I will get back to you by the end of the week. Whatever it is, let them know and then stick to that. The other little guideline I say is don't lie. Go away, think about it. Look at your diary and think, do I really want to do this thing? Um, I mean, there's a difference here between things at work, which maybe you have to do because they're part of your job description and personal requests. But 
these are the guidelines anyway. So think, do I really want to do this? Then I also try not to lie and say like, oh, I've got great Uncle Cliff's drinks that night. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm Are so, you laughing? Because what did you do I'm lie? I'm laughing because... I always think, well, it's just a white line. No ah. one will find out. Now, shall I say I'm ill or ooh, I've got an important meeting tomorrow so I just can't make it? And in my head, I'm like, what will offend? Like, so, Because ah. I was all about people, ah. all about not, not being offended. judged and not, being, uh, not offending people. So, because, see, I think the lie, even the white lie, one, you can get found out. Two, you get, you get anxious covering your trail of lies. So when you see that person next time, you go, oh, how was great Uncle Cliff's drinks? And you go, what? And you've got, oh, oh, yes. And you get, uh, and they know from your body language at yeah. some level. So I would say, have some stock phrases like, um, I've just got a lot on at the moment. I can't, I can't do that. I can't make it, or it sounds great. But, I, I you know, I'm trying to prioritize my well-being at the moment. Mm -hmm. I have been overscheduled. I've been overscheduling myself. Like, take responsibility for it. And I'm trying to prioritize my well-being. And to be honest, if someone said that to me, I wouldn't be offended. Exactly. I would just think, wow, good on yes, them for telling brave. the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But then the final bit of it is if you can, throw forward. So if you say, like, mum, I don't want you to bring great uncle Cliff to Christmas. That's quite a hard thing to say. Often our parents are the hardest people to say no to. Mum says, can I bring great uncle Cliff to Christmas? And you don't want him there. Because kids don't like him, or you don't like him, he's an old racist. So you say, Mum, but maybe we could all go to lunch in the new year. Throw it yeah. forward or suggest another person for it, especially at work. I've kind of, you know, worked with people who've said everything keeps getting dumped on them because they say yes to everything. So say, like, um, I've got a lot on at the moment, I'll have a look at my workload, I'll come back to you tomorrow. Come back tomorrow and say, like, I absolutely can't do it until next week, but X might be able to. Now, don't dob in X if you haven't checked with them first, but sometimes there are underworked people who want the opportunity. I don't know. Or I can't run the jam store at the church fate, but Janice wants to do it because Janice has said, oh, I wish I could do more. Do you see what I mean? Yes. So suggest another person, another date. But again, don't say that if you don't want to. The trickiest ones of all is when someone says, we must get together for a coffee, give me some dates. And you think, I never want a coffee with X. But how do you say that? That is a very difficult one. And what we all tend to do is just ignore them, don't reply to the text. That's not good. It's not good. That avoidant response is not good. And, and, I, and I find myself doing the avoidant as well. When you I do. don't know of a, an answer or yeah. I don't want to give the actual answer, yeah. I'll avoid it and wait and come back. Yeah. Once I've thought it over. But yes, yeah. it can be quite avoidant. So again, I think the busyness one is good. We'll just say like, um, I am trying to prioritise building up my new business at the moment. You could say that, building up my business. Um, so for the foreseeable future, I just can't do coffees. I or I can't do this coffee. Because even that would be a lie, should be doing coffees with other people. I love this because like these are practical tips rather than saying, well, just don't be a people pleaser no. or analyze your no. limiting self-beliefs. And we can all go down into why we do it. But actually the tips and, and the advice of, well, if you're going to do it, this is the best way to handle it. I yeah. find that that's, that's and also, amazing. And that empowers us much Totally. More. Because also I say I don't use the word people pleaser in my book because I think it's shaming. So we already know we've got a bit of problem. I don't want to be called a people pleaser because also these social skills you have as a lovely, people who haven't got them would, would kill for them. So my chapter 11 is lovely, comma, with choice. That's yeah. what we're aiming for. I don't want to stop being really personable 
but I want to be able to say no, I want to have options. So what I say is these, these behaviours of, of people-pleasing, they, they, they suited you, they worked for you when you were a child or older. They were once what we call psychologically adaptive, yes. but they have become maladaptive. So I try and coach you in the book, of like as an adult, can you use your adult intelligence to do behavioural experiments to know that you can push back a bit, you can say this gracious no, and nothing bad will happen. You won't be beaten by your mother, father or teacher. You won't die. Because a little bit of your inner child is going, <gasps> if you say oh, no, you'll die. Yeah. You'll be out in the cold or, in the, from the girl gang and they'll kill you. Or whatever it was, yeah. however you were punished um, yes. when you were younger. Yes. Do you think this, or how do you think the best way, um, we all talk about women empowerment at the moment. What do you think the best way of becoming a, an empowered woman is? Sonia, that is like the $50 million question. And, and if I had my, what I believe in, in one sentence, it is empowering women. So you are asking the right person, but, you know, it's so big. I would, I think now I would say empowering humans, because as the mother of two sons, I have sought to empower them and would continue to do that. It's not just women, but women have got thousands of years of being oppressed in the patriarchy. So we do need more empowerment. Okay, so it is, it's about self-belief. It is, it is saying... I do this exercise called the Dependable Strengths Inventory, which is a really good exercise, where you list all the things you've ever been proud of. Not that someone said you should be proud of, but that you feel inside. Like when the teacher put your painting on the wall when you were five, or when you passed your driving test. Well, my own is when I saved up for my dog when I was seven. And then in the second column, you put qualities of me. That shows. And so I might be, you know, like, determined. Frugal, I'm very frugal, and that's quite a good thing. Um, you know, kind, personal, whatever. And you build up this list. You can do it every day, if you like, as you notice a new thing you've done. What am I proud of about myself? And those are called the dependable strength. They are your strengths. They are dependable because you will always have them. That's who you are. So in those moments of life when we, we wobble and we lose our self-belief, oh, I can't do the promotion, I can't do this, I can't apply for that job, I can't, whatever. Look at your list. Look, I'm going into good posture mm -hmm. as I say it. Like, that is who you are. And everyone has those. I used to work at Holloway Prison about five years, and I used to do that exercise with a group of women. They used to get quite angry with me and go, Miss, I'm in prison. I've, I'm a drug addict. I've lost my kids. I've got 10 years. How dare you ask me to do I've got nothing to be proud of. And then I'd go, okay, has anyone else got a suggestion for X? And someone would say, well, you've come to this group because you want to change. Absolutely. That's so brave. I can't cry thinking of that. And then we'd all, everyone at the end, everyone's clapping and crying because these, she couldn't deny that. She'd come to the group. Jackie, that is so powerful. Look, and I, I feel emotional. Yeah, I know, no. And, and I've, done this, I've, I've done a similar exercise and it's when you can really embrace those um, those qualities in yourself yes. and you can love them, love all the traits of yeah. you. And, and, and actually recognising, like you say, it's writing them, down, down every day yes and and yeah. a new one may come to you and yeah. embracing those and think wow this this is what makes me yes. me and that's why i'm special yeah so that so just to then link that to the book i'm trying to write is about it's sort of about overcoming your everyday fears to be the best you can be so it's not just about like follow my example and do these crazy dangerous things like you know set up an indie and go to war zones it's about stand up to your boss and say like i am overworked i'm here till eight o'clock every night my contract says six. Can I go, I'm going to start going home at six, at least one day a week. Like small, manageable behavioural experiments. And build up your own 
personal bravery in those small things, because that's true courage. True courage is not being an adrenaline junkie, going to war zones. It is daring to be who you really are, speaking your truth, not just to power, but to your friends, to your parents, to everyone, and empowering yourself. I love that, speaking your truth, empowering yourself. Mm. Jackie, what's next for you? We've touched on the book. Can you give us a title of the book? Is yes, it? so the, my working title is this idea, Fear Hyphen Less, which means both fearless, because I look fearless, but also how to fear less. less. Jackie, I'm, I've loved this conversation and I've got a feeling we could have a natter <laughs> all day. Absolutely. Uh, but I have come to my last question and that is, if you were to write a message in a bottle for future generations to find, what would the message be? <sighs> that's, that's such a great question. I think, it, going back to what we've just talked about and the fear and the daring, it would be something about dare to live your truth and to be who you were born to be. I love it. Jackie, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. Aww, thank you. Total pleasure, Sonia. It's been wonderful. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like and you'll get it straight into your inbox.